This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Today on Something You Should Know, if you're one of those people who tops off the tank after the nozzle shuts off, there's something you need to hear. Then, the Internet has changed our language in many ways, including making us better writers. I've had some people uh, report sort of anecdotally that, you know, getting on Twitter helped teach them to be uh, briefer, more succinct, and more pithy because they had to, you know, think about that character constraint. So those are kind of subtle effects. Also, how you store eggs really matters. Every year, people die from bad eggs. And are kids today spending too much time with electronics and video screens? The average kid spends, by the time they're a teenager, let's say, about seven and a half hours a day in front of a screen doing non-schoolwork-related activity. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often-once-in-a-while-try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works and so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now. And support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hello. Welcome to Something You Should Know. I'll bet that you, and just about everybody else, myself included, have gone to a gas station, filled up the tank, the nozzle shuts off, but you go back and squirt in a little more gas into the tank. Especially if the price of gas that you're paying at the time is really low, why not? Well, there are a lot of reasons why not. Topping off your gas tank can cause pressure to build in the tank and flood the carbon filter vapor collection system which is only meant for vapor, not for actual liquid gas. Subsequently, this overflow can affect your car's performance and even possibly damage the engine. According to the EPA, once a gas tank is full, there's no way to fit any more gas in the tank. 
Gas stations are equipped with a vapor recovery system so that if a tank is full, the pump will pull the extra gas that you're trying to pump into the car back into the station's tanks. This is a safety precaution to ensure excess vapors will not escape into the environment. But it's also causing you to pay for gas that's going right back into the station's tank. And that is something you should know. The Internet has changed the English language. There's no question. It's changed how we write, how we talk, just how we communicate in general. Gretchen McCullough has studied the fascinating impact the Internet has had and continues to have on our language. Gretchen is the writer of the Resident Linguist column at Wired. She runs the blog All Things Linguistic, and she's the author of the book Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. Hi, Gretchen. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi, thanks for having me. So I can think of several specific ways that the Internet has changed or influenced the English language. But uh, in, ge- in a general sense, what's the change? One of the things that I'm really interested in when it comes to the Internet and language is how we're all doing so much more writing than people were a generation or two ago. You know, 50 years ago, you could have finished school and not really done any more writing unless you were a professional writer. And now you can't even organize a birthday party without texting somebody. uh, And we're doing all of this uh, this writing on a daily basis. And so trying to figure out what we're actually doing and analyzing that is what I'm really interested in. And how are we doing? I mean, it seems as if the internet has created, if not another language, another style of language that is much more informal, much briefer, you know, has new rules. So the letter U stands for the word U, and we've all agreed upon that. So so now we know if we see the letter U by itself, it means Y-O-U. So is that it, basically? Is, is, is that the internet has forced us to write more, and so we're briefer and more informal? Well, what's interesting is that in speech, we've had distinctions between formal and informal language for a long time. You know, you are, as a host of a, of a program, probably don't go home and talk to your dog exactly like this. Uh, you know, there's different sorts of styles that we have uh, in formal contexts, like a job interview, or if you're an actor or a radio host, than if you're in an informal context, like hanging out at a pub with your friends back when we went to pubs. And so the interesting thing is that writing, which historically has had, you know, a very large representation of this formal context where it's edited and it's long and it goes through all these sorts of processes to reach the public, hasn't had as visible of an informal side. People have written informally, things like postcards and diary entries, but it's been harder to make them public. Well, clearly one of the big changes that the internet has brought to language and communication is that you can have a real-time conversation in writing, whereas in previous generations, you would have to speak, you would have to talk to have a real-time conversation. Now you never have to talk to anybody. You can just text them and they text back and you text back and, and it's all the written word. 
You know, to have a real-time conversation in writing, it's easy to forget how revolutionary that was. You know, before uh, the internet, the way to, to have a real-time conversation in writing would have to be something like passing notes. So let's say you're in class, you're in a boring meeting, uh, and you're passing notes between other people. That's sort of the only way to have a real-time conversation in writing, because otherwise you're facing this problem of how do you get the writing back and forth to somebody in something that resembles in any way uh, real-time. I mean, maybe a telegraph, but most people didn't have telegraphs at their homes. So other than being interesting and noteworthy that this has happened to the language and we can shine a light on it and say, isn't that interesting? But what's the big so what here? Well, what's interesting about this is that uh, doing informal writing means we need to change the way we're actually communicating because informal writing has different priorities than formal writing. So one of the places we can see this is in how we use acronyms. Acronyms are a very writing sort of thing to do. You know, it's a lot more efficient to write an acronym in writing, but they're not actually that much more efficient in speech because saying each of the letters out loud isn't always that much faster. And in formal writing, uh, acronyms tend to be for technical terms, you know, things like laser and UNESCO and these kinds of long, uh, you know, technical uh, terminology or organizations and stuff like this. In informal writing, Acronyms tend to be for uh, common social phrases, you know, things like OMG WTF. Those are phrases that already existed uh, and they're not sort of, you know, technical bodies or, you know, technology. They're, uh, you know, common social phrases that people want to say BTW for, by the way, that's just a common phrase that you might want to put in a sentence. And so what kind of efficiency we value is we value a lot more the sort of direct communicative stuff um, and the social stuff and the ways that communicate our tones of voice and our gestures and the other kinds of things that sort of make us truly who we are. Well, clearly one of the things the internet has done, particularly the smartphone, is move people away from talking on the phone to texting on the phone. I mean, it used to be when you had a cell phone, you used it as a phone. Today, many people just use it as a device to text a lot of the time. And one of the criticisms of that is in texting, you're not able to hear inflection. You don't know the you know, the tone of my voice because you don't hear my voice and that that can cause a lot of miscommunication. And, and I guess there are ways, though, to, to, while you're texting, to put emphasis on certain things so your meaning is a little clearer. It's happening a lot more. and People are using things like creative respellings. So, you know, uh, writing something in all caps to indicate that it's emphatic or, uh, you know, repeating the same letter to indicate that sort of emphasis or drawn out tone of voice. And all of these things can contribute to being able to more accurately express our emotions and uh, there are attitudes towards things in writing in a more precise way uh, than we can do when we're all writing in the same sort of formal way. One of the things that I've always noticed about or, or think about sometimes is when you write an email, you generally start the email with, hi, Gretchen, but when mm -hmm. you write a letter, you don't use the high. But if you don't use the high in an email, it almost seems too formal, like you're not, you're breaking a rule almost. Yeah, 
it's really interesting to see sort of what our perceptions are of formality. And formality is a is a shifting target. You know, what is what is considered formal is also sort of constructed by our societal expectations. You know, you can see this in clothes. Like there was a period when a suit, what we think of now as a conventional suit, was considered informal because it didn't have tails. <laughs> Um, so, uh, but now, of course, now a suit is considered very formal. So, and the same thing may happen with something like deer or high, you know, maybe another generation or two, high will start seeming formal and like the normal thing will be hay or something like that. Yeah, but I, I actually was writing uh, out a, or typing a letter to be a letter and started it with, hi, Bob, and realized, well, no, you, that, that, you don't do that. You, that's, that's, that's a, you're cross, you're mixing and matching here. That's not, a, that's not allowed. And I went back and made it dear Bob instead of hi, Bob, but I would never put dear Bob in an email to the same guy on the same subject. I just wouldn't. Yeah, it's really interesting how certain things are associated with different formats. And I have seen some people uh, try to give, especially sort of younger people, the advice of like, oh, you need to use dear in emails. Some people use dear in emails to me. I have a sort of ongoing analysis of my own emails that I receive uh, to see what's common uh, in this sense. And some people do use dear in emails. It tends to mark them as being of a certain generation, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> and But younger people tend to resist the advice to use dear in emails, not because it's too formal, but because because they parse dear as too intimate. And the idea being that if, if, you know, if you send me an email that says, Dear Gretchen, and you're like, you know, 18 or something, you feel like you're calling me like your darling or something. It feels very intimate, which dear kind of is, if you think about it in a literal sense. Although, of course, in the letter writing context, uh, that meaning has been bleached out by conventional use. And so it's interesting to see the, the resurgence of the literal meaning of dear uh, by people who haven't encountered it as much in the letter writing context. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think of dear as, as being so not that. And I think what's helped to wipe out the intimacy of dear is things like dear homeowner. Um, mm. You know, uh, the, the, well, uh, clearly that's not very intimate. Um, you know, dear occupant. Um, well. <laughs> but, you know, but that said, if you're, you know, you've encountered dear homeowner or dear occupant or, you know, dear, uh, like, person who uses our banking app. Um, but, you know, if you're a little bit on the younger side, you might not have encountered that as much. And so you might parse it as meaning something similar to dearest or darling, which, you know, people used to start emails with something like dearest or, you know, to the right noble and valorous or sign them things like your obedient servant or most humbly. Uh, and we don't use those anymore. And those seem uncomfortably literal to us. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting to think about language and English from this position of we're in the middle of its history. There, we're not at some sort of end point where everything that ended up here was inevitable. There are all these things that could be different and may well be different, will probably be different uh, in another hundred years or, or more. We're discussing how the internet has affected the English language and continues to do so. And we're talking with Gretchen McCullough. She is author of the book, Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So, Gretchen, understanding that there is some back and forth, it does seem that the rules for internet writing and the rules for formal writing don't they don't move in and out easily into the other. They, they, maybe occasionally, but again, you don't you don't usually start a real letter with "Hi, Bob." It's more likely to be "Dear Bob." But it's it. it I would never in a letter use the letter "u" for the word "you." I, I just you just don't do it. Yeah, and I think that's something that people miss sometimes when they think, oh, you know, the, the kids are doing all of this stuff. And it's really that, you know, you can have multiple registers of, of language, and we're all used to this happening in speech. Uh, and so the idea that there's a different register for how you write uh, a letter versus a, you know, or a resume versus something like an email versus a social media message, if you're writing a tweet or a text to somebody, you generally don't start that with like, you know, hi, mom, <laughs> do you want to chat sometime this weekend? Love, Gretchen. I don't write my text with any sort of greeting or or signature at all. And I don't think most people don't. Well, I've also heard people say that, you know, in the name of efficiency, that an email doesn't need a hello and goodbye, that you don't need to say, hi, Fred, because you sent it to Fred, he already knows who he is, so you don't need to say that. And since your email address is in the from box, there's he already knows who it's from, so there's no need to sign off on the email. You, you could definitely make that argument. And I think with emails, it's interesting because there's sort of this maximally formal email that you can send to somebody who you don't email very often or who maybe you're emailing for the first time, where you do have the sort of hi, Bob, and the signature, you know, thanks, Gretchen. Whereas, you know, somebody who you email a lot, if you're emailing somebody every other day, you might start to dispensing with the greetings and salutations because you're always kind of part of this bigger meta conversation. Um, you know, especially if you're forwarding something to somebody who you talk to a lot, you might say, just wanted to see, make sure you got this and not put uh, any sort of uh, greeting or, or, or farewell. Or if you're emailing back and forth with the same person in the same email chain, after a couple back and forths, people often stop, you know, they often drop the, the salutation, they drop the closing, because they are just sort of treating it more like a conversation at a certain point. So there's, even within a, what seems like a single genre email, there are different ways that people do it once they've been emailing with the same person for a little while. Do you think that, or is there is there evidence to show that these little quirks of internet communication and texting and emailing and all, that they are affecting the language in general somehow, or do they remain in their silos that, yeah, that's a quirky way we kind of email back and forth, but it's just email or it's just text, but it's not really affecting the language, the English language? Well, it's interesting because, of course, hi was common offline before it became ubiquitous in email. Um, and one interesting example that also comes from technology is the greeting hello, which these days we don't really think much of, but was actually introduced uh, with the telephone. So before the telephone, uh, hello as a greeting 
was not common. People said, you know, good morning, good afternoon, these types of things. Um, but the problem was when they answered the phone, people didn't have an obvious thing to say when they picked up the phone. Hello at the time was used as a, a sort of summoning or attention getting device. And there were various proposals for what should be the case for this thing you say when you pick up the phone. One of the proposals that never caught on that much was ahoy hoy. But hello is being used very similar to ahoy uh, in the sort of attention getting function. And it took on the functions of a greeting after it became ubiquitous for the telephone. Uh, and some people, you know, even a few decades later, people like Miss Manners and so on were really disputing whether hello was like a reasonable thing to say uh, if you weren't on the phone. Uh, and it's really funny to look back at these sort of controversies at the time, because now you think, well, what's wrong with hello? Hello is fine. You know, people, it always takes a certain period of adjustment when you get a new greeting like that. Do you suspect that, or is there reason to believe that the brevity that seems to be required in things like text messages and, and to some extent email, that th that is leaking out, that, that people are just more inclined to be brief because we're conditioning ourselves to be brief uh, online? I think that's an interesting question. I've had some people uh, report sort of anecdotally that, you know, getting on Twitter helped teach them to be uh, briefer and more succinct and more pithy uh, because they had to, you know, think about that character constraint uh, or things like, you know, if you write a, an essay on Twitter as a series of tweets as a thread, um, then you need to make each thread, each tweet in the thread be able to sort of stand alone and be retweeted. So I've noticed myself anecdotally, sometimes I repeat concrete nouns more in a thread than I might in a, you know, a longer paragraph essay, because I can't, you know, I can't guarantee that someone, instead of using a pronoun, so instead of saying it or they or the committee or the person, um, I'll have to repeat whatever thing it is that I'm talking about, because if someone retweets this tweet out of context, they're not going to know who they or it or this refers to. So those are kind of subtle effects. Um, I think in terms of length, it's really hard to tell, right? Because in another sense, electronic communication gives us the potential to go longer because pixels are cheap and paper is expensive. So one place where you see that is in uh, the increased use of line breaks in internet mediated communication as compared to just spaces and paragraphs in text-based communication. So one interesting area that I've compared a lot is uh, postcards versus things like captions on Instagram or text messages or other types of informal genres, because in some ways, postcards are very like a sort of proto social media post. They're not like a letter where you write this long thing and you have this expectation of privacy. You're writing something and you're aware that like the post carrier, the people who work at the post office, the letter carriers and so on can read it. Anybody can read it. You can stick it up on a, a poster board or something and people can read it. And in postcards, people, when people are demarcating between lines, they have to use this very, very rigid, rigid space um, and use it very economically. And so they write short stuff, but they use periods to, or sometimes dot, 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 or a, a dash to hyphen, uh, to break up between uh, different different remarks. Whereas the equivalent type of thing on social media or in the internet context in general, uh, often involves a lot more line breaks or message breaks to break up between different utterances. Uh, because in a text-based, in a you know electronic format, new pixels are cheap, new lines are cheap. It's not like you're going to run out of paper in the same way that you put on a postcard. But here's, a, here's something I've noticed that has changed the way I write emails a long time ago. If I write a letter, if I write a two-page letter, that's a long letter, but 
The recipient, if he gets it in the mail and takes the time to sit down and open it, is probably going to read it. If I write an email that asks somebody three questions, 90% of the time I'll get an answer to one of them, but not the other. Others, because people don't value, I think, the email as much as they value a paper letter. Well, there's an interesting sense. I've seen some people make this proposal. Like One thing that's really interesting about electronic communication is that it makes it so cheap to send somebody a message anywhere around the world. You know, you can call someone for free on, you know, Skype or Zoom or any of these video call platforms. You can send someone an email for free. Whereas a letter, you had to spend 50 cents or whatever on the stamp, on the envelope, on the paper. And imagine if you had to spend 50 cents every time you wanted to send someone an email, (laughs) you know? Uh, there have been some proposals and none of them have caught on, but they're interesting proposals that uh, there's some sort of email platform that actually charges every time you send an email. Maybe it's, you know, just a couple cents. But the, the idea being that people would therefore be a lot more responsible about which emails they send and not bother people unnecessarily because eventually it would add up. You know, you can, uh, if you're a spammer, you can send out thousands and millions of emails trying to get people to buy your like cheap knockoff Rolex watches or whatever. Uh, and it doesn't cost you any except maybe the time to to do it. Whereas if you want to send that out as direct mail, you have to pay a lot more money to transport physical objects. So there's the one side that the recipient values it more, but maybe they value it because the sender also has to express this sort of value. Uh, You know, it's harder to send a letter. You have to go to the post office and send it. You have to buy a stamp. Whereas you can just fire off a bunch of emails and bother a whole bunch of important people and (laughs) who didn't ask to hear from you. Uh, So it's you know, I think we deal with a lot more emails than we might have done with letters because it's cheaper to send them. Yeah, well, it, it, because we get fewer letters, we get fewer paper documents, we give them more value, we give them more attention, whereas emails, I mean, the, I, I mean, I get a lot of emails that I never read. I mean, I can tell, I can tell it's spam and off it goes. And I imagine, I imagine that there are times when I'm discarding emails I probably should have read, but they just get caught up in the junk. It's, it's an interesting sort of sort of conundrum, right? The, you know, if you make communication cheaper, on the one hand, everyone can, can communicate. On the other hand, everyone can communicate. And so there are, there are, there are good and bad effects of that. I read some interesting studies about early gener- developments of both the memo uh, and the telephone. And it's really funny these days because a lot of people romanticize uh, the telephone. You know, why couldn't we just pick up the phone or, you know, romanticize sending out letters? You know, why can't you just send a letter? People used to do this. But at the time, people who were living in those eras criticized them a lot. So the criticism that people had about the telephone uh, was that so many phone calls turned into this game of telephone tag. You know, you call someone, they're in a meeting, they're not in their office, they don't pick up. Maybe you leave a message, but before answering machines exist, you couldn't even do that. Uh, (laughs) So you just try to call again, or they get your message, um, they call you, and then you're not available, and so you're trying to call back. and you're playing telephone tag. There are all these memo. There are all these papers from the ni- from the seventies about how much of a drain on productivity playing telephone tag was. Now, some of them were authored by voicemail companies, to be fair, but it seems like they were speaking to some sort of real frustration. And the same thing with the development of the memo. Um, earlier in the century, uh, in the previous century, which was saying, you know, sending business letters is very inefficient. People write these long greetings and salutations, these very long letters. We should instead standardize on a memo form that's half a sheet of paper so people can't get too long, that has these to fields and from fields so people can't do these long greetings uh, because letters are too long and they're very inefficient. So every era has these complaints about the communications technology of the era. 
And now we're complaining about this. But it really is interesting to see how technology and the internet and smartphones have really altered the way we communicate and and how that has kind of become very acceptable. My guest has been Gretchen McCullough. She writes the resident linguist column at Wired. And she is author of the book, Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. There's a link to her book in the show notes. Thank you for being here, Gretchen. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Since television first came into consumers' homes, there have been all kinds of dire predictions and concerns about how letting kids sit in front of a television screen will rot their brains, desensitize them to violence, negatively affect their schoolwork, affect their weight and physical health, and cause them to be less social. Well, today, with smartphones, laptops, computer games, YouTube videos, as well as television, kids are spending a lot of time in front of screens. And the coronavirus has certainly made this an even more likely place for kids to go. So how concerned should we be? Joshua Wayne works with kids and families in schools and mental health facilities and in private practice, and he's author of the book, The Simple Parenting Guide to Technology. Hey, Joshua. Hey, happy to be here with you. Thanks. So how concerned should we be? I mean, kids are obviously spending a lot of time in front of screens. What is it doing? Is it really that bad? What's the lay of the land? What do we know? The average kid spends about seven and a half hours, by the time they're a teenager, let's say, about seven and a half hours a day in front of a screen doing non-schoolwork-related activity. So that is video games, as you're suggesting. It's also Netflix. It's social media. It's you know YouTube, where, where a lot of teenagers tend to live right now. You know, there's varying data out there about what the actual negative impacts are on the brain from video game usage. I think at the end of the day, though, this really just becomes a a parenting decision around what kind of lifestyle do you want your child to have? 
Do you feel good about your kid being in front of a screen seven and a half hours a day? And by the way, that just does not even include time spent on schoolwork. So I really think that it, it just comes back to a personal decision around what kind of values do, do you or, or do I have as a parent and how do we want to raise our kids? What What is the right amount of screen time that feels right for our family? I think that's really the place to begin the conversation. So I get that. I understand it's a personal decision, it's a parenting decision, how many hours uh, do you want your kids sitting in front of a screen? But what I don't know, and I think what a lot of parents don't know and would like to know, is what is the harm? I mean, it seems like letting your kids spend hours in front of a screen, you know, playing video games and blowing things up or watching endless hours of YouTube videos, seems like it's probably not a great idea, but I don't know. I mean, maybe it is a great idea. What's the evidence say? What what is what is the known harm or the known benefits of a lot of screen time for kids? Listen, there's all different. Here, here's the thing: we're still early in our understanding of what the long-term impacts are around kids being on screens. Let, let me give you, a, and, and this is somewhat anecdotal because I'm, I'm not going to sit here and try to hang my hat on a particular study because I think there's studies all over the place and I think there's a lot of personal, you know, people uh, opining their values all over the place. So partly what I can give you is, is, is my bias as a parent myself, but also somebody who works with families and has for 20 plus years. I think that... When it comes to tech, I think the, the, the key thing from my perspective is that we have to make sure that our kids have a meaningful life apart from technology. I don't think tech is the enemy, but I don't think from my experience, it's not healthy when that's all kids do, when they sit there 12, 13 hours a day and that's all they do. So my, the way I like to frame it is that the issue isn't tech, the issue is moderation. And as parents and people in the lives of kids, we have to make sure that they have at least some kind of meaningful life apart from devices, that that's not the only thing that they're doing and that's not what they're spending all their time doing. Fair enough. Still, right now, especially with with the coronavirus and, and staying home and not being able to socialize, a lot of the things that kids would be doing when they're not in front of a screen, like playing with their friends, going to school, getting out, going to the skating rink, hanging out downtown, what, what, whatever it is they're doing, they're not allowed to do. So then they come back and say, well, but what, what can I do? I can't do those other things. And... Uh, Playing video games or watching TV seems like a good idea. Well, I'm, I'm going to push back on that a little bit because there are other things to do. It may not be the things they want to do, but they can read books. They can hang out with you. They can do stuff outside. They can go for bike rides with you. They can go. I mean, there are things that they can do. It may not be their first choice, but it's it's not that there there literally is no menu of options for them. But I but I would say this, especially with this coronavirus lockdown period that seems to be now prolonging for a lot of folks. I, I do believe that we should be more relaxed around device use for our kids. I think we have to take a deep breath, relax a little bit, and realize that the, the big picture priority here is to get them through this in one piece, physically, me- mentally, um, I mean, physically, you know, obviously being healthy, but also psychologically. 
right? We, we want them to be healthy and balanced. And I don't think we should be going crazy and starting World War III in our living room about every minute of, of screen time that they have. What I generally say to parents, though, is that even though you're, you're, it's, it's reasonable to be more flexible with your rules during this time, there is one rule that I do think and that parents should adhere to, and I really encourage them to do so, and it's to make sure that devices go to bed at night too, meaning that there's a set time at night, whether that's eight o'clock or nine o'clock or midnight, whatever the time is that you that is right for your kids and the in based on their age and maturity level and all those other factors, that there's a time when you shut everything down because kids need to go to bed. And during times like these, a lot of them will just become nocturnal creatures if we allow them to. And when they're not sleeping, it throws everything else in their life off. It throws their moods off. It throws their whole circadian rhythm off. It throws their, 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 just their normal day schedule off. So if, if you can do nothing else, I say to parents right now, at least have a shutdown time and stick to it. Well, I think, though, we have to have a conversation about the addictive nature, especially of video games, that, I mean, I I know you're saying, you know, turn the devices off at night, but I know kids who get in trouble because they take their phone to bed with them, and they stay up, literally stay up all night and play on their phone. There's something addictive, and maybe addiction is too strong a word, or or maybe it isn't, I don't know, but there's something about video that really sucks kids in. For sure, which is why also when I say turn screens off at a certain time at night, I mean all screens. I don't think kids should have their phone in the bedroom overnight because for most kids, it's an unbearable temptation to have that phone within arm's reach. And, and it's it, you know tech is kind of like sugar for a lot of kids. Once they get a taste of it, it's all they want. And, and it is it is addictive. You know, there's different people that have different uh, there's different studies out there around is this truly an addiction in the same way that that alcohol or, or some other substance can be. And, you know, I don't know, I, I've, I spent a lot of time working in, in the substance abuse field earlier in my career, and I and I saw how that truly wrecked people's lives. So it's a little hard for me personally to make that that correlation. But there's no question that it is it is it becomes this very, very compulsive behavior for kids in a way that they have real trouble hitting the brakes on for themselves, which is why where I think we have to come in as parents and parent. You know, it's harder, sure, when they're 16 and they're more autonomous and they're on social media and they're and they're more sophisticated. But we're not done with our job of of setting limits. You know, we didn't we don't if your kid comes to you and says, hey, can I eat a whole bag of Oreos today? You're, you're, you're probably going to say no. You can have three or four Oreos, but but we're not. This is not how how you're going to eat in my home. And in in a similar way, we have to be willing to to step out there and set some rules and really draw a line in the sand. I think again, it can be flexible and, and there's room to be reasonable and even negotiate within within certain parameters. But at a certain point, knows a complete sentence. No, you, you have to turn it off. It's 11 o'clock at night. We're shutting everything down. I'm shutting the Wi-Fi down. I'm gathering up all the devices. That's how we're doing it. Yeah, well, it, it seems so reasonable when you say it. And it's hard. I get it. I get that it's hard. You know, that's why I say I don't know that you – it's a harder sell to say, hey, it's 6 o'clock. You've been on the thing for six hours already today. Shut it down. I, I get that that's a tough sale. But at 10 p.m., at 11 p.m., I, again, I think we just we have to assert our, our role. It's our right and our responsibility to set limits 
around this stuff as parents. And it doesn't mean that they're going to go along. They're not. It doesn't mean that they're going to be happy about it. But if we are firm and we have a sense of resolve, they they will come around. So you said something at the beginning when when I pressed you for the science that it's all over the place. That there are studies that say all kinds of different things, and I think. You know, that's a concern for a lot of us because we we don't know how bad this is. And, you know, I remember hearing when I was a kid how bad TV was going to rot our brains and, you know, if we sat in front of it for hours, we were going to turn into zombies and all. And it seems that that didn't really work out too well. And and there's a lot of, uh, of advice, uh, you know, so many hours for a kid at, at such and such an age and... And so what do we know? What do we know, if anything, about the effects of this uh, on kids long-term, short-term, any-term? There is data showing that the more time they're in front of screens, there's a good chance that their schoolwork is going to suffer. Because what we know happens is that a lot of kids will multitask, you know, where they're toggling constantly back and forth between, say, their, their math homework and YouTube videos. And there are studies that show that the more that they are doing that, the more their grades are going to suffer. There is some data out there showing that the more hours they spend in, in front of screens, the more their social skills become impaired. So th- there's, again, there's a, bunch of st- there's a bunch of studies and we're in the early stages of it. I also think that parents can just look at their, draw their own anecdotal conclusions. I mean, when your kid is sitting in front of a screen for 10 hours and then you try to get them off, is, is your kid communicative? Are they easy to be around? Is it easy then to tra- transition them into some other activity, some kind of family activity? It's usually not. So, you again, know, that's they're, they're, the thing. That's the thing that, that is so alarming to me if if I get wrapped up in work or whatever and the kids are home because there's no school and they spend a lot of time and they have to come to dinner or whatever, I see a definite shift in their mood, in their behavior, and not in a good way. And it's pretty short-lived, but it's certainly concerning that, and, and so the assumption is, well, you know, watching all these videos or playing all these games is doing something to their brain that makes them do that. Or maybe it's just the difficulty in transitioning from one thing to another. But but I see it, and I bet lots of parents see it. And it's, and it's not just kids. I think anybody, you know, young adults who are get hooked on this stuff, the same thing happens. It's, they get grumpy and cranky and impatient, and it's a little scary. And uh, adult adults have problems. There was a study that came out of Common Sense Media. Um, I'm, I'm not going to nail the percentage right off the top of my head, but it's something like 41% of teens complain that their parents are distracted by their phones when they're together. It's, it's, some, it's something to that effect. Right. So, you know, if you walk into just any Starbucks, I mean, obviously not so much now, but under normal circumstances, you walk into any Starbucks or restaurant these days, what do you see? You see whole families sitting there together at a table and they all got their phones out. You know, so it's, it's the other thing we have to look at is what is the modeling? What kind of modeling are we doing for our kids? Because if, if we have a hard time putting our phones away, if we have a hard time not posting every single thought and every single moment of our day on Instagram or Facebook, it's pretty much a guarantee that our kids are going to have the same challenges. So we also have to 
look at ourselves and our behavior and what we're modeling for them. Are, do, are we able to put our devices down and walk away for, for three hours and, and not be pining for it? Yeah. If we do those things, it's very hard to insist that, that they do the same thing. So it sounds a lot like what you're saying is that it's not necessarily, or, or maybe we just don't know, it's not necessarily the specific harm that the screen is doing so much as that it's keeping kids from doing other things. It's If you're doing this, you can't do that. If you're watching and playing on the computer, you're not out with your friends, you're not socializing, you're not getting exercise, you're not doing the things that kids need to do. Yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it. And and I also, in, in terms of dishing out advice, I, I look at it sort of from the, the opposite angle, which is that if we can ensure that they're out doing those things, that they're playing sports, that they're being active, that they're hanging out with friends, that they're going to band practice, that they're hanging out with you and going on a hike on, on Sunday afternoon, if you're doing those things and you're, and you're making them more balanced individuals and you're rounding out their life with those other healthy non-digital things, by definition, they're just not going to be in front of their device as much. So I think part of our responsibility is to make sure that they are balanced. Again, to me, tech isn't the issue. To me, tech's not the problem. The problem is moderation here. Um, and I just think that, that that is really where our responsibility comes in is we have to set this tone so that, sure, they can play video games. They can be on YouTube. They can talk to their friends. They can TikTok, Snapchat, all of it, but within some reasonable limits, that ultimately every parent has to make a personal decision on what those limits are. You know, I mean, as you said before, they're, they're, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics used to say that the right amount for teenagers at least was two hours a day. They've kind of backed away from it. I, I think they didn't want to be pigeonholed in some very specific number. Now they said so it doesn't it doesn't eclipse other healthy activities they're doing or something like that. So I think every parent has to make that judgment call around what that right number looks like. But again, my my, my hypothesis is that kids do better. And again, we're still early in, in, in the data gathering around this, but I think the data supports it, um, that they do better when tech is not all that they do. What happened to, remember that there was all this discussion about, you know, when bo teenage boys, adolescent boys play violent video games, it's going to make them violent just as watching violent movies and TV shows. I don't hear that so much anymore. Yeah, I, I don't either. You know, I'm sure if you were if you were to start really mining around on Google, you could find some studies. I don't I don't think a lot of that has really panned out from the latest research that, that I've seen on that. Um, I think that's a lot of that has been somewhat debunked. I think it also I think I think a lot of that is tied to other factors in their life. You know, what's going on in their family life? What's going on? Are they socially isolated? Do they have friends? Do they have other activities going on? I think those end up being more reliable predictors of kids engaging in, in violent antisocial behavior, uh, more, more so than video games. Well, one of, the th one of the things that I don't really get is my, my son, who's 10, loves to watch those guys who play video games. So that he's watching somebody else play the video yeah, games that he plays. Now, I, I, don't, I, don't get, I don't understand the thrill in that at all, because why not just play the game? Why watch a guy play the game? But he loves that. You and me both. I don't understand it either. Somehow that, I, I don't know how that became a thing, but that's a thing. 
Well, we do know certain things that when they play these games and probably when they're watching other people play, play it on YouTube, there is a there is a massive amount of, of stimulation that's going on in the brain, you know, particularly, I believe, in the neocortex. I'm not a neuroscientist, but but I believe it's particularly in the in the neocortex. There's a very intense amount of stimulation that's releasing little bits of dopamine and it's very exciting to them. It's 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 super fun. There's little there's little hints of adrenaline and dopamine, these these chemicals that our bodies naturally create that in the right amounts create some some sense of pleasure and, and excitement and anticipation. So I, I get it. Um, I don't fully understand it. It's not what I want to spend my time doing. My son's six, so he's not quite in that zone. At least I've, I've been able to keep, keep it at bay. At some point, he, th- that may be an issue I have to contend with with him. But again, it just comes back to what, what, what are the limits that we are going to choose as individuals to set for, for our children around this stuff? Right. Well, I think that's a really important point you just made, that it, it isn't, it's not that it's out of their control, but it isn't just because they like it because they like it. There, there's a chemical thing going on there that it's a, it's a reward satisfaction thing in the brain that, that makes it kind of like an addiction, like more, more, more. And it isn't just a choice they're making, and they, they could go clean their room, but that's not going to give them quite the thrill that this does. For sure. For sure. And, 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 you know, again, coming back to the whole parenting point, if we don't insist that they go clean their room, they're definitely not going to go clean their room. You know, if we don't tie the use of the video games to other things like cleaning their room or doing other chores or, or spending some quality family time together on, on, on the weekend or whatever it is, then, then of course, then they're not going to do the, the, the things we'd like. They're just going to sit there in front of the, the game. You know, this is one this is one perennial parenting um, maxim that I always come back to. And so whatever you permit, you promote. So if we let them sit there for six, seven, eight hours watching these videos or playing these games, if we if we allow it, we're essentially promoting it. Yeah. Well, so that, we have to decide as parents, what, what behaviors do we want to promote? Well, it's good to get your perspective because, well, like many parents, I worry that, you know, the kids are spending too much time in front of the screen and should I be overly concerned should i loosen up a little bit so it's good to get it's good to get some insight my guest has been joshua wayne he works with kids and families in schools and mental health facilities and in private practice and his book is called the simple parenting guide to technology you'll find a link to that book at amazon in the show notes i appreciate you being here joshua yeah take care thank you for having me Most of us refrigerate eggs here in the U.S., but in many other countries, eggs are not refrigerated. And if they're not, they can sit at room temperature for about a week. But once they are refrigerated, then they have to stay refrigerated. In the fridge, eggs can last four to five weeks after their packaging date if you store them properly. If you do take them out of the fridge, the rule of thumb is you can leave eggs on the counter for about two hours at room temperature or an hour if the temperature is 90 degrees or hotter. After two hours, you'd be safer to throw those eggs away and get a fresh dozen rather than chance it. The fear, as usual, is bacteria, particularly salmonella bacteria, which can make you very sick. The FDA estimates that about 79,000 people become ill 
and about 30 people die every year from bad eggs. And that is something you should know. One thing that helps this podcast, as it does with every podcast, is ratings and reviews. First of all, it impresses people because if you've got zillions of them, people think, well, it's a pretty good podcast if all those people left a review. I'm told it also helps our rankings in the charts, and, it, it, and I like to read them. So take a moment and leave a review. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.